the Slaughter in May podcast. Welcome to the third podcast in our Regulating Digital series. In today's podcast, Natalie Donovan will be speaking to Rob Sumroy and Duncan Blakey about whether our current privacy rules are fit for purpose in an increasingly digital age, whether the ICO is doing enough to encourage innovation in the digital space, and how, in practice, businesses can innovate in a privacy-compliant way. Rob is head of Slaughter and May's technology practice and co-head of our global privacy group. Duncan is a tech and privacy partner who has advised on numerous innovative data projects. And Natalie is a counsel PSL at the firm and former in-house lawyer at a global technology company. Welcome to our third Regulating Digital podcast. Uh, My name's Natalie Donovan and today I'll be speaking to Rob Sumroy and Duncan Blakey, both partners in Slaughter and May's global privacy practice. So welcome to you both. In this series of podcasts, we're looking at changing regulation in the digital space and potential conflicts between data protection and competition regulation. Um, But today I'd like us to focus in a little more on the privacy angle. Now, as you know, we act for a variety of clients and whenever we discuss innovating with data, unsurprisingly, there's a lot of focus on privacy compliance and GDPR compliance. So, Rob, maybe if I could start with you, how in practice do you think the GDPR and now obviously the UK GDPR is working in an increasingly digital world? Thanks, Nat. Uh, Yes, look, as we know, uh, one of the main purposes of GDPR when it was introduced was to update the previous European privacy regime to make it fit for purpose in this new digital world that we find ourselves in. So I, I think you know, if used properly, GDPR can definitely enhance successful innovation. It can help build consumer and regulator trust with things like, you know, increased transparency, privacy by design, uh, tools that have been introduced by GDPR, like privacy impact assessments requiring organisations to consider privacy at the start of any project. So I think if done well, privacy compliance can definitely act as a, as a or be used as a differentiator in the market. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something the Information Commissioner believes. I know she's said on on a number of occasions that good data protection should enable innovation. Yes, that's right. I mean, recently she said it enables innovation, I think, because people's trust in how their personal data is used plays a role in their overall confidence and support for, for the services they're buying. That's what she said. And, and it's certainly something we're seeing with our clients, uh, definite recognition that trust, both regulator and customer trust, in how data is being treated uh, is needed for new products or services to succeed. That said, I think in practice, there are definitely some aspects of the current regime, and I'm thinking here things like data minimization or profiling and and the regulations around automated decision-making, where it really can be difficult to align market practice with the GDPR, and companies, clients of ours, simply don't know how to fully comply with the law. I mean, that's interesting, as there's obviously some flexibility around how to comply, given that the law is uh, principle-based. Maybe, Duncan, are you seeing those same issues, or is that flexibility helpful in your view? Yeah, I mean, I think think flexibility is certainly important when you're looking at the use of new technologies or or new ways of using data. I mean, I I think, as you say, Nat, the the GDPR kept that principle-based technology neutral approach of of the old data privacy regime. And in many ways, that can be seen as a a positive for innovation. You know, it it focuses on legislating the harm rather than the technology. And 
um, you know, makes that legislation more flexible, I guess. Um, as long as you're complying with the principles, it doesn't really matter what your product or process looks like or the technology that you're using. But I think a, a principle-based approach can create some uncertainty. You know, some of our clients, um, particularly those on the emerging tech side, they're, they're looking to develop innovative you know, data products and services. But as Rob mentioned, they, they don't always have that certainty that they're going to be okay from a privacy perspective. And I think that can be become particularly important or challenging when you're thinking about things like securing funding or you know, getting customer buy-in for your product or service. So I suppose given these issues, how can regulation be developed in a way that works for organisations of varying sizes and which both incentivises innovation while still giving individuals that choice they need about how their data is used? So maybe maybe I'll take this one. I mean, I, from my perspective, I'm, I'm very certain as to as to what the starting point here is which is clear guidance clear guidance on how to apply the law is what we need so that i think that's twofold first of all the guidance needs to be on the right topic so if you take the ico it means they need to upskill on developing areas of technology to ensure that that as a regulator they understand what they're regulating and how the market which is you know a fast moving new market how it is developing uh, and what guidance is needed but also that guidance needs to be operationally relevant. And that's something that our clients tell us they need. We hear it often. That means tackling more difficult scenarios in the guidance case studies, for example, rather than sticking maybe to, to more obvious examples, which we sometimes see. Now, you know, I, I don't want to be too negative here because I do think the ICO is, is trying to strike the right balance. So if you take AI as an example at the moment, you know, the ICO identified AI as one of its top three strategic priorities. Um, and that's that you can see that, you know, there's been a real focus on AI um, within the ICO with some new AI guidance. Only last week, the ICO has appointed a new director of technology and innovation, who I understand joined the ICO from the World Economic Forum, where he was known to have promoted a more agile, innovation-friendly approach to regulation. And I think we think his appointment is, is a positive step by the ICO. Um, the ICO has also shown that they're happy to work with technical experts. Um, you know, on the two recent pieces of AI guidance, they worked with the Alan Turing Institute on Project Explain, which produced the guidance on explaining decisions made with AI. And then there was also Dr. Ruben Bins, who um, had been engaged by the ICO as part of a fellowship scheme designed to deepen the ICO's knowledge around AI. And he helped develop the recent guidance on AI and data protection and also worked on the AI auditing framework project more generally. So they've definitely shown a keenness to get technically capable people in at the regulator. And then I think the other positive thing that, that I've, I've seen and have been happy to see from the ICO is that they've been trying to engage with different stakeholders in this area. So running the innovative informal consultations on the AI auditing framework where they publish blogs and encourage dialogue and feedback off, off the back of those blogs. Um, and also, I think, targeting their guidance at particular groups, which has been good to see. So if you read the uh, explaining AI decisions guidance that I just mentioned that they, they did jointly with Turing, um, that's got different sections aimed at different audiences. So some is aimed at senior management, some some is aimed at the technology teams, which I think in theory is is really positive. I think, you know, in practice, it, it um, maybe, you know, some of the information is very useful for lawyers and advisors. I'm not yet convinced that it's couched in the right terms for, for, for boards and directors. But, you know, in, in principle, I think it's a really positive approach. 
Which, I mean, all sounds generally pretty positive. I, I mean, I know from our previous discussions that we've had that you are also aware of some practical issues, you know, when trying to apply all of this. Yeah, I, yes. I mean, I think there are, there, there are some issues. Um, I mean, sticking again with the AI theme, um, whilst I've mentioned all of the uh, guidance that the ICO is producing, you know, there's a lot out there, and I think that can make it difficult to apply in practice. So just take, for example, there are three main pieces of AI guidance from the ICO, the two I've already mentioned, and then the, the, the third one being um, sort of the initial guidance that was last updated back in 2017. But what we don't have is any sort of clear uh, uh, understanding as to how they're all supposed to work together in practice, other than the ICO effectively saying, read them all, apply them all, and then recognize there might be some overlap. Um, uh, you know, and I think that that's not particularly helpful when we're looking for small companies that are trying to innovate, particularly, they've got all of this guidance, they're long documents, I mean, 80 to 100 pages plus, they overlap. Um, the most recent AI guidance, for example, acknowledges that explainability is a key issue that's covered in detail in Project Explain guidance produced with Turing. But then, it, then the ICO go, goes on to say that this new guidance includes some additional considerations about AI explainability within an organization. So you therefore have to read the two pieces of guidance together, which, as I say, from our perspective, it, we don't think is particularly helpful in practice. Yeah, no, I mean, agreed. So I suppose a key takeaway here is probably that uh, while principle-based law needs guidance to help organisations know how to apply it, um, too much overlapping guidance becomes unhelpful and organisations can get a, maybe a bit swamped by it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, it's, it's particularly you then need to be factoring in, you know, things like the more general ICO guidance that, that's out there, you know, things like... Um, you know, the data sharing codes, you know, those are all still going to apply to, to your AI issues. Um, yeah, as well as, you know, guidance from, from other supervisory authorities where, you know, the EU law is still going to be relevant to your particular product or service. So you almost need a matrix, I guess, of all those different pieces of, of guidance to work out what's required. And I think you know, this is one of the reasons maybe that Professor Azraki mentioned in, in one of the earlier podcasts in this series that the GDPR is seen by some as, you know, one of the most anti-competitive pieces of, of legislation that exists. I mean, it's it's hard enough for large organisations, you know, who often have teams of advisors to to work through that maze of guidance. So, how can we expect a, an SME or a startup or scale-up company, you know, with an innovative data idea, who has very little compliance resource to to be able to do it? Um, and yeah, you know, it's it's not just the, the the data privacy regulators here who are producing materials in this area. We know the EU's been busy in this space, and you know there's guidance from bodies such as the CDEI and some of the sector specific regulators as well. So you know, looking at the FCA, for example, you know we know they're also working with Turing on AI related transparency project for financial institutions. You know, and that work is covering some similar themes to, to the ICO guidance that we've touched on, but it's, it's doing it in a way that's using slightly different terminology or you know, categorising concepts in a, in a slightly different way. So I think you know, coordination sort of within the ICO and you know, between the ICO and, and other regulators and bodies is, is going to be key here, and that's you know, both to make sure that you know, the correct guidance is produced you know, and, and that the different pieces of guidance are are sort of all working together 
and it's also just to help ensure there's a consistent approach to regulation and guidance across you know the different regulators. And I think yeah, that that's particularly important at the moment given the you know the interest that we know the CMA and the FCA are taking in digital development. Now, I, I would say that's that's not to say the ICO isn't isn't alive to these these sort of issues. You know, we you know we know they're already involved in a in a number of multi-jurisdictional and cross-regulator groups to sort of increase that that cooperation element. But I think it's just an area where there's always going to be room for, and I think a need for, you know, more action and more coordination. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting, I think, to see how increased cooperation with the ICO and the CMA uh, develops. Uh, initiatives like the the recent Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum have, have kind of been set up to ensure they have a joined up understanding and approach in these areas of overlap. And I mean, obviously, that's all relevant to this wider theme of our of our podcast series. Yeah, agreed. And, and look, as I mentioned, you know, the ICO has been working more generally with with other regulatory bodies like the FCA and the CMA, and you know, they have various MOUs in place, which you know are really helpful. They sort of set out general principles of cooperation and how data is going to be shared between those those bodies. But I think you know a more coordinated approach with the CMA in particular, I think, is is quite important at the moment, given given the areas of of focus are increasingly starting to overlap. You know, and I think we are starting to see this. You know, I know last month I think the CMA report on algorithmic harms, for example, that that specifically called out, you know, working with the ICO and other regulators, you know, in this space. Which I mean, again, all sounds like positive steps in in the right direction. So maybe to move things on now, we've touched on guidance and, and cooperation. Are there any other regulatory developments you're seeing the ICO make that help incentivise innovation? Um, Rob, I'm thinking here maybe the sandbox is an obvious example that springs to mind. Yeah, thanks. I mean, the sandbox is definitely an area where it's good to see the ICO being innovative. Sandboxes themselves are not new because we know the FCA in the UK has been running theirs for some years now, but certainly within the privacy uh, arena. I think the ICO was the first regulator to, to run a sandbox. And it's really interesting to see the issues that the ICO is looking at through its sandbox. We understand that the, the ICO has recently selected some new projects um, to join the sandbox, which they say should help organisations comply with a, their data sharing code and, and the children's code. Previous projects in the sandbox have looked at a wide range of issues from from bias in algorithmic decision making uh, to financial, uh, sorry, uh, facial recognition uh, in in airports. Um, And I think the sandbox is definitely a way for the ICO to show that it supports innovation and new innovative data users. It helps organisations get free ICO advice and assurances that their new products have tackled potentially tricky data protection concerns up front you know, things like privacy by design in practice, in effect, um, uh, and with the ICO's blessing. And it's also a great horizon scanning tool for the ICO. We helped the ICO early on uh, in putting the sandbox together. And, and I know that they saw that then as a way, a great way for them to sort of keep on top of new data uses that were being proposed by innovators. And of course, it's also a really helpful tool for advisors like us and businesses thinking of trying similar projects to learn from the experiences of those involved in the program because reports are published detailing detailing progress uh, on an ongoing basis. So I think for, for those thinking of applying to the sandbox, um, one thing that that is worth bearing in mind is the public nature of participation. 
you know, it's not necessarily always helpful for the organisations concerned. Uh, I'm thinking here uh, of the example with Heathrow Airport, where the ICOs report about their project to automate part of the passenger journey through the airport, openly discuss the various challenges in the process. Uh, and I, th I think describe one of Heathrow's consent collection methods as largely inadequate. You know, Heathrow later informed the ICO that they were going to postpone their plans to use this boarding pass consent process. So that's not necessarily a bad thing because it, it stopped them spending more money on something which the regulator would ultimately have frowned upon. But it's obviously a very public way of going about that. Um, anyway, so yes, yeah, the sandbox. And I think moving off the sandbox, another area for me, which is of real interest when thinking about innovative data use and management is the developing area of data trusts. Yeah, I mean, data trust and, and data stewardship more generally certainly seems to be an area that's currently uh, receiving a lot of focus and a lot of research going into it. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's something that was mentioned in the recent data strategy, which referenced both uh, the UK's pre, uh, previous AI review that stated that organisations needed better access to data. And one of the key recommendations in that government data strategy was the development of data trusts for data sharing, uh, but also reference government investment in research in this area, such as the Open Data Institute's project. I mean, interestingly, there's not currently a huge amount on data trusts on the ICO's website. They were briefly mentioned in the consultation draft of their recent data sharing code of practice, but that text didn't make its way into the final version. Um, there is a, a quite a nice, neat description of data trusts in a 2019 ICO consultation response, which describes them of, uh, as, as taking the concept of a, a legal trust and applying it to data. Um, so I don't think it's supposed to be a legal trust per se, and, and uh, the ODI research suggests that trust law isn't appropriate here. But the ICO describes data trust as providing a legal structure that allows for independent third-party stewardship of data. Uh, the idea be, behind data trusts is that they facilitate sharing between multiple organisations, but do so in a way that ensures that proper privacy protections are in place, um, that there's governance of data, and that ensures that interested parties are represented, fair sharing of, of the value that can be derived from that data. So that's sort of what the ICO um, discusses discuss it as and, and the ICO goes on to say that data trusts really have the potential to greatly increase the competitiveness of digital markets so look I think that there'll be lots more discussion this year I think 2021 will be a year where we see a lot of discussion about how data stewardship uh, you know so data data trusts and other methods to steward and govern data will work in practice how they can be structured and ultimately how they can help encourage innovative data use in a, in a way which is compliant with privacy. Great, thanks Rob. So just to start wrapping up, we've, we've been looking at what the regulators and, and with data trusts, what, what the government can do, but Duncan, what do you think organisations can do to successfully innovate with data in a, in a privacy compliant way? Yeah, I think a few, a few key things. Um... You know, first of all, really understanding what, what you're doing as a business with your data. You know, are your tech people and your business people joined up on the type of processing that's going to take place? You know, does everyone know what that common goal is and, and the technology or data that you're going to be using? 
Um, you know, and I think that extends all the way up to a governance level as well. You know, does your board or management fully understand, you know, that, that business model to enable them to make the correct risk management decisions? You know, are, are they able to fulfill their explainability and, and transparency obligations? You know, these are these are all key key factors in the UK GDPR, especially when you're looking at innovative data uses. And you know, it might sound a bit trite, but you're not able to be transparent if you don't fully understand, you know, what you're doing with your data. I think the second thing you can do, you know, is, is make use of the tools and the regulatory guidance that's available. You know, we've been saying this for a while, but if you only see, you know, privacy compliance as a tick box exercise or you know, something you can deal with at the end of, you know, the process, it's not going to work. Um, you know, we've seen businesses, uh, you know, trying to retrofit compliance, um, you know, at the back end of a project. And, you know, it, it's either really costly or it's just something that just, just doesn't work. You know, if you can engage with, with some of those compliance requirements at the outset of your project, it, it can actually help you innovate, you know, and develop the particular product or service and, and ultimately sell that you know, to to customers, you know, in a really positive way. You know, as we all know, it, people are becoming increasingly aware of, you know, and protective of their of their privacy rights. Um, so, if you're able to structure your product in a way that shows that you've you've taken those concerns to heart, I think that's that's a really positive step. And I think one one really important early step in this process is is your uh, data privacy impact assessments. You know, you need to be doing those those properly. That those assessments. Um, yeah, they really force you to understand how that how your data is going to be processed in connection with your, you know, your, your project. The the different types of risks involved, and you know how you're supposed to be or how you could be um, mitigating those risks. I think thirdly, look at the current enforcement trends. You know, you're trying to learn from the mistakes of others here. Um, you know, assessing, I guess, how regulators are. Are looking at particular practices or or products or sectors. You know what are they expecting from those those organisations that they're regulating. You know understanding the particular issues that are going to vex regulators, I think, can be really informative and helpful when you're you know developing your particular business model. And I think lastly, you know, gauge with the consultation processes when when you can. You know that as Rob mentioned earlier, the ICO is. I think it's trying to work you know, really hard with stakeholders, you know, to, to develop its guidance, um, and it's got some quite interesting ways of ways of doing that. So, you know, if it's difficult or it's, or it's challenging for you to commit to that that process, you know, see whether there's a trade body or or some other entity who might be able to do that on your behalf. Um, I think we've seen firsthand that the ICO, you know, is really good at taking action in response to to consultation feedback. So. Yeah, it is really worthwhile engaging with if you feel so strongly about a particular area of guidance. Great. Uh, thanks, Duncan. Um, so maybe, Rob, if I could ask you for one final thought to sum up the issues we've been discussing today. Thanks, Nat. Yeah, look, we're seeing increasing overlap in these areas of privacy, data and competition regulation. Uh, I've just been discussing the need for increased cooperation amongst regulators and governments, but that extends down into organisations too. So for us as, at the firm, we're working more closely than ever before with our competition team and have set up a cross-stream regulating digital group to help coordinate this work. And so I think for our clients too, we'd say that you know you need to be thinking in a less siloed way and ensure that the correct tech, business, compliance, privacy teams are all talking and understanding what each are doing in this area.
which is actually a nice way to finish as it prompts me to mention uh, the webinar that our Regulating Digital Group is hosting on the 25th of February. So details for that um, are on our website along with the other podcasts in this series. So I suppose now I'd just like to, to say thank you to Robin Duncan for your time today uh, and say that we'd hope to see you all at the webinar on the 25th. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.